this podcast from Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Um, I always feel very at home with you. Uh, um, so that's, that's, that's great. It's always great as, to be here with Izzy's leading worship. That takes me back years. Izzy was originally part of us. So um, that's a bit of nostalgia for me and for us to be engaged with. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael. I'm uh, just one of the family contributors at Grace Church Stoke and Trent. One of many. So I've got my lovely wife, Suzanne, here with me. I've got my son, Torin. I've got Ginny, who's also left with Izzy. So I'm not quite sure if she knows what I'm going to say and thought, forget it, I'm out of here. Um, but uh, it's great to be part of community. I count myself very fortunate that I'm addressing on what I'm going to be addressing because some people get a bit confused, all right? So I think our worship time has been really affirmative in truth and substance of who God is. I want to, give it, I want to take that truth and give it a, not a different direction, but give it an extra emphasis, okay? And some people get confused. I know, I know you guys are well taught, you're high up there, you're good runners with this, so I'm not, I'm not worried about that being a problem. But what I want to talk about, I want to emphasise our human relationships this morning. Okay, so we've heard about God being Father. The fact that it's Father's Day helps me a bit. Okay, it's very convenient, thank you for arranging that uh, for me, that's, I really appreciate your generosity. It helps me a bit, but actually it's not a Father's Day message. All right, it's about our human relation. I'm going to talk about Paul and Timothy, about Paul being a father to Timothy. Women, I want you to fully embrace and understand yourself as caught up in that. You can do it in one of two ways. You can either think every time he says father, he means mother, for me, if that helps you. Or, women, you can understand yourself as fathers. That might be a bit odd. But actually, there's a fathering, there's a, there's a discipling, there's a growing that we understand biologically in terms of what it means of being a father. But spiritually, of course, as females, you're fully able to do that. Okay? You're able to impart, you're able to teach, you're able to instruct, you're able to take authority. You're able to do all those things that stereotypically we might understand as being male role models in fathers. But as females, you can get in the good of that as well. Okay? So actually, in the Bible, it talks about us all understanding ourselves as sons. That means for females as well. You need to understand yourself as sons. Why? Not because Paul was dismissive about women, but actually he wanted to make sure that women fully understood that they were inheritors. See, at the time in the culture, the women didn't inherit. And actually, it wasn't that long ago. In our culture, you didn't. Otherwise, Jane Austen wouldn't have had anything to write about. Okay? But the notion... And guys, we have to understand ourselves as the bride of Christ. Yeah? So, I, you know, that notion of being in a white dress walking, that doesn't really appeal to me. And so I think, I really want to do that. But as a, as, a, as, a, as a male, I have to understand what it means for me to be part of the bride of Christ. So, let, let's go with that. Let's try and work through that in terms of what it means. Like I say, it isn't particularly connected to Father's Day. So, please don't lock into that. I want you to listen. I want to engage with this relationship that Paul and Timothy had understanding what goes on there. Not that God isn't our Father, of course He is, but actually God in being our Father actually provides other people around us to help us in fathering and mothering us. Do you understand that? So actually when Rupert was talking about the shields, he very brilliantly emphasised the Roman nature. Often they would lock their shields together. It wasn't just me on my own with my shield. If I am isolated, that's great. But actually the whole point was it's supposed to be used in community. And the Bible is always pointing about your individual personal relationship with this great God who chooses to put his affection on you, chooses to put his favour on you, and then encourages you to work that out in community. So David, taking on Goliath, rescues a nation. What happens as he grows? He gathers an army. He impacts nations. It's not just David and his own little stories. Crucial though those are to the journey. Something is built that's communal. Something's built that impacts nations. Something's built that goes just beyond me and my small corner, if you like. So here we've got, we've got, we've got Paul and Timothy. Can we go on to the next one, please? So here we've got just a brief text. This is Paul writing right at the beginning. He says, I, Paul, 
uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is writing to Timothy, calling him my true child in the faith. Paul, as I'm sure you know, and if you don't, if you're new in this journey and you don't know much about the story, I think that's great. I love it when I hear of people that are just starting their journey and think, oh, who's, this, who's this guy Paul? Who's this guy Timothy? Great. Don't, don't, don't sort of feel any sort of sense of, oh, these guys all know everything. If you're new at it, fantastic. You have got things to teach us. You know that, don't you? If, there's a new, if you're a new Christian or on the journey to becoming a Christian, for those that have been around the block a little bit, it's so great to bump up against people like you as you're finding out. Maybe you're on Alpha, maybe you're thinking about going or whatever, but if you're new in it, you think, I don't know Paul, never mind. Never mind, just, just engage like we all do and, uh, and grow with it. But this is, this is written by one of the early church heavyweights, a guy called Paul, who was Mr. Robo-Apostle, went round taking the gospel to all sorts of nations, through all sorts of settings, as Christianity exploded across and beyond the Roman Empire in the first century. Highly influential man. Half of our, half of our New Testament is written by him. Just a hugely significant guy. And he's writing at this point to a guy called Timothy. Timothy was comparatively young. The church that he's been left at in a place called Ephesus is going through all sorts of hassles, all sorts of challenges, which Timothy is charged with sorting out. We're told that he was young, that he was somewhat shy, needed encouragement, needed lots of affirmation, and also that he was often ill, unwell. So here we have Timothy, a young, diffident, frail man, who Paul, this great apostle, describes as my true child in the faith. Paul's getting towards the end of his ministry. This is in 1 Timothy. He writes to Timothy, later than 1 Timothy. Well done, you worked that out. But he writes it just a few years later, but that's right at the end. Probably one of the last letters he wrote. So we're getting towards the end of Paul's call, of his journey. And whilst I'm not trying to get bogged down with days, I want you to understand that as he writes this, Timothy, my true child in the faith, there is good reason for him to write it. There's been a journey, there's a heritage, there's been experience, there's been engagement. It's not like, oh yeah, he's a nice guy, that Tim. No, he's writing it out of experience. Paul and Timothy's relationship is quite a way down the line by now. And you'll see why that's important, hopefully, in a minute. Uh, my sense is not to unpack the details of this letter, that's not where I'm going. I want you to stay with this phrase. Timothy, my true child in the faith. We're going to watch a couple of video clips now that will demonstrate something of fatherhood. If you've been around the block a bit as a Christian, you might have seen this before. I sort of apologise for that, but also I don't. Okay? There are two clips. They're the same events. One with a guy explaining what's happening, and the next one with a nice emotional music running and nothing happening, but you can see what goes down. Are we good to go with that? Is that okay? I'm remembered for two things. One, for being part of the winning relay team that defeated the Americans in the 1991 World Championships. But the most famous thing that I'm known for is not finishing a race, and it's for the race in Barcelona. Unfortunately, I'd had a few injury problems, mainly with Achilles tendons, and that sort of hampered me through my career. But by the time I was in Barcelona, I felt great. There was no issues, no problems. Derek Redmond, the best form he's shown since he broke his record, which was way back in 87. And I remember thinking, I'm going to win this race. The gun goes. Wow. And I had a really good start. Redmond's got off very fast indeed. I'm flowing down the back straight. And as I describe it, I hear a funny pop. And Two or three strides later is then when I felt it, and I felt the sort of the rip of the hamstring. Redmond has broken down. He's on the track, kneeling down, and Derek Redmond, well, his injury problem, the jinx has struck again. And I just remember having my hand on the back of the leg and just sort of collapsing to the floor in, in pain. Then I remembered where I was, and it was just like, you're in the Olympic semi-final. And that's pretty much what what made me get up and, and, and start to, to run. 
uh, or hobble. And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to finish this race. Um, it might be the last race I've ever run, so I'm going to finish it. Not for anybody else, I'm going to finish it for me. And I was just about to start into the home straight and I could sense this person on my left-hand side. And then I heard a, a very familiar voice shout out, Derek, it's me. And instantly I knew who it was. It was, it was my dad. Up until then, I'd managed to keep all my emotions in and hold it together relatively well. But as soon as I saw him, that was it. I, you know, I lost it all and I was in tears. I died. can't believe, I can't believe this has happened. Why me? You know. With his track record and injuries, it may be his only Olympic appearance. He just can't hold it. He would always have been there with me. And he spent many a year standing on the sidelines in the middle of the winter with a coffee in his hands, trying to keep warm. And all he was saying was, look, you've got nothing to prove. You're a champion to us. You'll be back. Don't worry. We'll do this together. I just said to him, get me back into lane five. I want to finish. I want to finish. Just get me back into lane five. And the joke that I always make about that is the first and last and only time I've ever been able to shout at my dad and get away with it. You know, any other time as a kid, you would have got a quick smack around the ear and told, oi, less of your cheek. <laughs> we still had officials trying to, to, to stop us. And they're not quite sure what to do. They're thinking, who's this crazy man that's just walked onto the track? He's, what's going on? All this sort of stuff. And right up until the point I'd gone over the line and walked through the line, I had no idea the reaction it was having on the crowd. And I sort of, you know, had a look around. People were going absolutely mad. Everyone was on their feet and all this sort of stuff. Some of the messages and letters and stuff that I get from people say, you know, you have no idea who I am. I'm not in sport. I've been through, you know, some hard times. Just want to thank you for your inspiration. It's quite strange that people to this day still find it, you know, inspiring. It's a nice feeling um, that I've done something that has helped so many people in their own ways. There was an outside chance of having a battle for a gold. Does it make up for that? I have to be honest and say no.
I don't know how many times I've seen that, but every time I watch the second one and I'm waiting for the dad to come in, it just does me in when he just he disappears. Um, I also love love the fact you get to see him pushing the officials away and really fighting his cause. Go away, go out. I, I don't know how well you can lip read. I don't I don't know exactly what his language was, but I could definitely see a go away in there at least more than once. You will have been supported by human beings. Maybe not in obviously such a dramatic way and not so publicly as that. But my point is, quite simply, that often we think, yeah, God sorts everything out, and of course he does. And obviously there are times when he does that beautifully, supernaturally. But if you're anything like me, what happens to me most of the time is that God puts good people around me that carry me like that, that lift me. And when I'm down, when I'm broken, when I'm bereft, when I'm lost, when I'm distraught, actually it's good people that he's put around me that he provides, that, that do that for me. Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother, Greek father. Some, some uncertainty as to what role Paul had, maybe directly in their conversion or not. Certainly Paul writes with great affection about the family. And here, at right, just at the outset of this letter, he addresses Timothy not as a co-worker, not as a pastor, not as a fellow laborer, not as a disciple, but actually as a child, my true child in the faith. I mean, you often wonder whether Timothy found that a bit patronizing. I'm guessing he didn't. It could, it could come across like that, couldn't it? Timothy, oh, you're just a little boy, son. No, actually, he's a, my true child. There's a huge amount of affection. And whilst we don't know exactly what role Paul had in Timothy coming to know Jesus, we do know that the role, the engagement, the relationship developed and prospered over many, many years of working together. Paul could write to the Philippians commending Timothy to them. He said this to the Philippians. He said, I hope to be able to send Timothy to you. Well done. I hope to be able to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served me with me in the gospel. See, I think sometimes we almost think, Paul, don't you mean you've got no one like Jesus? Should, isn't that what you should be saying? Don't, isn't that what you really mean? I mean, Timothy's just flesh and blood, you know. He's, 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 he's fallible, he's... He's going to let you down. And, and Paul would have known that. And it doesn't detract from our celebration of our wonderful King, our wonderful Savior, our all-embracing King Jesus. Actually, I, for me, it, it values who he chooses to put around us and honors him. So the people that I've put around me, okay, let me put it the other way around. Once or twice, I know I've helped other people, Okay. I'm not in any doubt for one minute as to whether they thought I was Jesus or not. Yeah? I never came away thinking, oh, flip, my goodness me. I hope for, I hope for some reason I didn't distract from Jesus. I didn't think they thought, crumbs, we don't need Jesus. We've got Michael. I'm, I'm never in any sense. I don't think for one minute. I've never had that query or concern. Because I think it's jolly obvious that I'm not Jesus. You don't have to follow me. For, so if for some reason you thought, wow, this guy, you won't have to follow me for very long. You won't have to walk behind me for very long to work out that I'm not Jesus. Okay, talk to my family. Talk to Ginny. Talk to Izzy. Talk to other people here that know me well. They'll be able to put you right very, very quickly. But I am confident that Jesus has put me in particular places and settings for me to be him, to be his hands and feet to all sorts of other people. Yeah? That's not just to the church. So... Who is the light of the world? Jesus. Who else does he say is the light of the world? He says you. He's not confused. He's not, oh, hold on, no, let me read He's not, oh, what did I say? No, Jesus is the light of the world, but who lives in you? Is the right answer, well done. Okay, who lives in you? Therefore, because of everything we've been singing this morning about who he's made us to be, that isn't just supposed to leave us with a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's supposed to stir and motivate us into action. It's supposed to reassure. It is supposed to be that shield that protects, that provides reassurance, that gives us confidence. But we're not supposed to still be huddled behind a shield somewhere, not doing anything, just thinking, oh, good, I'm glad I got my shield. 
It's supposed to take us on moving forward as we worship this morning. Yeah, you picked that up, didn't you? It's not just, hey, sit over in there in the corner with your shield, feel sorry for yourself, and hopefully everything will go away. And let's be honest, there are times when we are like that. And sometimes it's even right and appropriate that we are like that. But that's not where we're supposed to stay. It's not where we're supposed to remain. We're supposed to be pushed on and pressed on. I have no one like him. Paul could say of Timothy, he served as a son with a father. It's not a business arrangement. It's not like, yeah, he's a really good protege. This is a, a sense of affection that goes far deeper, far stronger. Paul doesn't just treat him as a son. He appreciates him as one as well. It is rather fortunate I have my son here with me today. So um, he isn't just my son because biologically, he's my son because I choose to engage with him and develop and enjoy that relationship. And again, he'd be the first person to tell you that I'm definitely not Jesus. By the time Paul's writing this letter we're looking at today, they've probably worked out closely for about two decades. Throughout this period, they've traveled together, and when a crisis has arisen, Timothy has been ready to assist. There's abundant references to Timothy in Paul's travels and labor. Timothy not only traveled with Paul, but was sometimes left behind to care for churches. It's happened in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Other occasions, Timothy was deliberately sent by Paul to serve churches at Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi. And when writing this letter, as I said before, Timothy's been left behind at Ephesus to care and resolve some of the difficulties that the church has experienced there. Even traveling with Paul, I mean, that wasn't always plain sailing. In fact, frequently it wasn't. It was dangerous. Timothy was on hand with Paul, notwithstanding dangers of proclaiming the gospel in different cities, frequently encountering hostility. Timothy accompanied Paul even to his last journey to Jerusalem where he was arrested. And he was with him in Rome during some years of his imprisonment. No one was a more constant companion of Paul than Timothy. No one worked as closely and consistently with him as Timothy did which is probably why Paul can write, I have no one like him. Again, it's not, it's not just a syrupy thing. Oh, he's lovely. Oh, he's just a good egg. Oh, he's, yeah, he's just a really enthusiastic guy. No, this is ground out, if you like. This is earned. This is a, it's not just an emotive thing. It has substance to it. And what I find intriguing is that it seems that this sense of affectionate commitment was actually cemented quite early on in their relationship. Even at the beginning, there's nothing sentimental about what Paul expected from Timothy and what Timothy was prepared to do for Paul. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul first appoints Timothy um, as his assistant, it happens something like this. Uh, Paul came also to Derby. I mean, imagine that. You know, what a heritage you guys have. Yeah, I'd love that to say Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> in fact, the Greek, in the Greek, there is some dispute about whether it should... No, <laughs> Paul, came, Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Let, let, let's unpick that a little bit. My observation of both myself and other believers is we often read our Bible too quickly. Just a couple of verses, bang, we're on to the next bit. Sometimes because we feel a pressure to sort of get through the whole thing. But actually, what's going on here? This is a pretty significant event, I would suggest. And what's, what makes it all the more intriguing is it seems that it seems that Paul doesn't know Timothy personally that well at this point. Why do I say that? Well, it says that the other brothers spoke well of him. It's almost like he was getting a commendation. So who's this Timothy? Maybe you noticed him, maybe you observed him. But actually, it's the other guys. It's the guys in the church that speak well of Timothy. Paul hasn't necessarily noted all these things firsthand. He's prepared to take the commendation. But... He's still prepared to make a huge ask of Timothy. Did you notice that? It says he took him. I mean, that does that sound scary to start with, doesn't it? 
he took him and had him circumcised. It doesn't mean that he laid forcibly hands on him and made him do it, even though he didn't want to. Please don't misunderstand that. But there's something very definite in the action. I mean, have you ever wondered how that conversation went? Maybe. Maybe it went something like this. Hey, Paul. Paul, I'm nearly ready and we're going soon, yeah? Uh, yeah, Timo, we'll, 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 we'll be going soon, but um, we probably need to wait a few days for you to recover. <laughs> Why would I need to recover? It's not like I'm going to pull a muscle with my suitcase, old man. No, no Tim. Um, okay, this is what we need to do. We're going to be going into Jewish places. People will know your father was good. We need to have you circumcised tell from the text how quickly Timothy gave his reply. <laughs> he also picked his jaw up off the floor, put it back on, and then started to think about what, not just what he was being asked to do, but the theology behind it. I, I need to be circumcised. Yeah, you're nodding. A need? Yeah, you're still nodding. Hold on. We're in Acts chapter 16. And just a few chapters ago, you took Titus to the guys in Jerusalem and you insisted he wasn't circumcised. Yeah, you know, you're nodding. And... If I'm right, in a few years' time, you're going to write Galatians and you're going to say, and I quote, that if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's what you're going to write. Yeah, you're not in again. Talk about a big ask. And one you could even look for theological loopholes in. Couldn't you? So he hadn't, he hadn't, we only wanted, Paul hadn't wanted Titus to be circumcised. He'd wanted to make a point to the Jewish church earlier that this wasn't essential. And yet, for, just for expedience sake, you could argue, he was requesting that Timothy went through with that. I think that's a big ask. I think it could be construed as being unreasonable. I would very much have articulated it was unreasonable if I had been Timothy. In fact, I think had I been Timothy, there would have been no further future in the relationship. Sorry, Paul. Get someone else, mate. This is no syrupy friendship. These guys are wholeheartedly committed to the cause and wholeheartedly committed to each other. There's no differentiation in how they see it. Working with Paul to bring the gospel, Timothy is committed to being everything he needs to be to make that happen as well as he can. Paul's prepared to make a big ask. Well, that takes some courage as well, doesn't it? I'm sure he didn't do it lightly. Actually, I'm a bit bored today. Let's have some fun. Bit of a prankster, Paul. I don't think so. I don't think he would have made that request without some serious consideration, certainly about the theology and the expedience of it. I'm sure he would have wrestled with that. Paul's prepared to make it. Timothy's prepared to respond to it. One wonders what would have happened had Timothy told Paul to go away. A bit like Redmond's dad. Could you make... Okay, we're not going to apply it in any way that's similar, all right? The principle is making a big ask. Paul made a big ask of Timothy. Is there a strength of relationship where you could do that to someone else, where someone else could do that to you, to make a big ask, to put something in front of you that other people might think, is unreasonable, maybe even dubious theologically. 
Or are we just in danger of living in a comfy setup where our relationships are pretty much superficial? As long as someone asks us something that we really don't mind doing, then sure, we're okay with that and we'll even be good and diligent about it and happy about it. And yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I work hard at that. But the moment someone says, Would you be, you forget, but no way. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This can clearly be abused. It could be misunderstood. I don't have the right to ask you of something that is unreasonable and lacking integrity just because I'm your brother in Christ. And you certainly should always have the right to say no. But I know you have some excellent role models here. I know you're beautifully taught. I know there's a real sense of family and community. I guess what I'm asking is, what does that bar look like for you? Is it possible that someone could make a big ask? Or is that just a no-go area? No, we, 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 we're good and we do this, but we, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't ever sort of push the boundary. We wouldn't ever really think, okay, because we just don't do that. That's a little bit uncomfortable. Someone could make demands of you that are unreasonable and override your conscience. That is always possible. I'd love to think that with good people around, that's not going to happen. If someone did do that, there would be a, a way of checking and reassuring and encouraging to ensure that wasn't being abused. But let's not, from fear of that being abused, write it off as a possibility. That if I know you well and I have a need, that I could at least ask you or engage with you on it. Fully understanding, expecting, and this is one of the ways I do that. I try and ask. I try and ask someone if I'm ever making what I think is a big ask. I try and ask someone I know is confident in me well enough that if they say no, that's not going to be the end of the relationship. That's one of the benchmarks I use, if you like. So if it's someone I don't know very well, I mean, it's interesting. Paul didn't possibly didn't know Timothy that well. But one of the things I try and do is make sure I know the person well enough to know that they're comfortable saying no to me without any sense of thinking that I'm imposing myself on them. And that if they don't do it, they're in trouble. I would certainly never say to them that God has told them they ought to do that, if it's something I want them to do. I'd ask them on the basis of my relationship with them. You see, cultivating an intensity of relationships where people are able to make big arcs and where they get taken up, that, makes, that requires integrity and grace. Carrying it through requires trust and obedience. None of those characteristics are particularly fashionable. Integrity and grace in the asking, obedience and trust in the following, those, those aren't qualities we hear a lot about nowadays. And yet they're crucial if we're going to build genuine relationships that are going to provide substance. It's not fashionable in our culture. You could argue, and we could debate all day about whether the church needs to grow in that. I would suggest we do. And I'm not talking just about you. I'm talking about us as a community of churches, making big asks, hearing big asks, challenging each other, growing each other with faith that is full of grace and integrity. See, it's not fashionable, but it is indicative of who our Trinitarian God is. That's what he does. He who lives in complete community has been forever concerned to draw others into that relationship. That's his desire. So much so that his son came to live amongst us to die on our behalf. I mean, there's a big ask, isn't it? And it was one that at one point at least Jesus didn't really want to do. What do I mean by that? I'm not being heretical. I'm not being irreverent. Jesus says, this isn't what I want to do, but if it's your will, I choose to submit. If Jesus could choose what was going to happen, he'd have said, take the cross away. In his humanity, as he agonized over what he knew was coming, he freshly submitted himself again to his Father's will. He said, not my will, but yours. 
That, that, that's our king. Our sovereign father God makes a big ask. His submissive son, our beautiful saviour, follows it through. Not in a robotic, oh yes, I must just do what the father says, but through genuine anguish. You understand that, don't you? You understand about Jesus' humanity in terms of it was nothing robotic. It wasn't just that was the way he was programmed. So that's how he did anything. No, he worked it out through his humanity. While never ceasing to be God, we see our humanity fully displayed in him and worked out in a way that we haven't done, but for our benefit and on our behalf. That's glorious, isn't it? That he would do that for us. That to be a fully obedient to the Father. I, mean, I don't know, how, how many times have you sort of been in a setting and thought, do you know what, God, I'm sorry I've let you down. I'm really going really to resolve that. I'm really going to sort it out. Maybe you're successful for a season. But I'd imagine most of us, as we encounter the glory of God, we're, we're highly aware of our own flaws, our own inadequacies. Like I say, I'm fully aware I'm not Jesus. I've never thought for one minute, you know, could I possibly be Jesus? Isn't that, you know, I'm fully aware of my own inadequacy, how desperately I need this obedient son, this obedient saviour to carry through this big ask on my behalf. And again, although this happens with specific individuals, so I could tell you my story, a time and a place where Jesus rescued me. Um, I'd love to hear some of your stories as well. I know a few of them. Actually, it's as we're born again by the Spirit that we become a people who demonstrate the Father's love. We de demonstrate the depth of the Father's heart most effectively as a people. If we're a community who live with only superficial depth to our relationships, just me and my own in my small corner, thank you very much, I love Jesus, please leave me alone, then actually our impact is minimized. Rather, as flawed individuals, we get the privilege of demonstrating this relational commitment through our flaws. So being choosing to operate an intensity of relationship, where there's a father, son, mother, daughter, however you want to use it, but recognizing that person isn't Jesus and they will let me down, not because they want to necessarily, but because of their flawedness. And I'll let you into a little secret. Even even as an elder, I can still be selfish. I can still choose to do what I want to do and not have a good attitude. That does happen. I hope that hasn't shocked you. It doesn't, again, that doesn't robotically get wiped away. I have choices to make. And you do as well in how you choose to live and work that out. We get the privilege of demonstrating this relational commitment, publicly displaying it before a hurting world. Because people are used to relationships going wrong in the world. We get the privilege of demonstrating how we can work that out through challenge and difficulty. None of us have attained perfection yet, but even working through those flaws demonstrates something of the commitment that our Father has for his people and for this world around us. When writing to the church at Ephesus, probably a year or so before writing to Timothy, Paul makes this startling claim. God planned that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't think it's a very good idea, God, actually. Why would you want to do it through the church? It's full of idiots. It's full of people that mess up. It's full of people that don't always do what you want to do. And God thinks, oh yes, I didn't think of that. No. He fully knows who he took on when he took you on. He fully knows what he was doing when Jubilee Church was planted. He fully knows what he's doing as the guys in Burton are planting there. He fully knows that he's got flesh and blood people, great servants who are flawed. That's not a shock to him. So when you do mess up, and I'm not encouraging you to do that, but when you do, that isn't a shock to God. He's looking for you to come back to him in repentance and resolve it and find a way of getting other people around you to help you work that out. It doesn't disqualify you unless you choose not to repent, I guess, is the brutal truth. 
So if you want to carry on doing something and carry on, then actually there is a place where you get to disqualification. God says, forget it. But he's put good people around you so you don't have to get there. He's put good people around you. Not so you don't ever mess up. There will come a day when that doesn't happen, where we don't have to live with that concern, where there is no sin, no sickness, no sadness, no suffering. There will be a day like that one day where you don't have to worry about my inadequacy if you're close to me. But we're not there yet. We're working towards it. I'm going to close now. Can I respectfully suggest... I'm not very good at that sort of thing. Can I respectfully suggest that if our relationships are polite but distant, he's lovely, she's lovely, he's a good, they're, they're okay, but whoa... Don't, don't, don't expect it to happen. Don't expect anything to happen as a result of it, really, apart from, uh, uh, yeah, I wish you well and pat you on the back and that sort of thing. If, if that's what our relationships are like, then actually we're no different to a club or an interest group where we just look after our own as long as it's convenient to us. So again, I'll, I'll help you out. If it's, if it's not too distracting for me, if I'm sort of going that way anyway and you need a lift, I, I could take you home, I guess. I could, I could maybe even do a few things for you. But don't, don't push it. Don't, don't push it because actually if you do, then I'll just go and choose a different club. I know you've got some excellent role models here. Are you demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God? Or could we be in danger of just being like an interest group or a club? I love the fact that you've got good role models. And I'm sure there are all sorts of arenas of your church family. I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about people that have the title of leader. I'm talking about all of us being spiritual mums and dads and helping others around us. Timothy clearly belonged at the church at Lystra where he came to Paul's attention. It was the fact that the other brothers spoke well of him. He wasn't just someone who attended a meeting. Oh yeah, that's Tim. He sits at the back or wherever, or he's in the corner and he never causes any trouble. I don't think that's the sort of guy Paul would have wanted to take with him. He was a good guy. He was working hard. The brothers at the church spoke well of him. And Paul... Sorry, Timothy, in the mix of that, would have shared life with people. It went beyond a, just a superficial statement. Something Paul saw in Timothy as he heard those commendations that he knew would prove to be so valuable in the years ahead. So if you're new, let me encourage you, make friends. Get to know people. Learn what it means to do life together. Find out how to hang out with people and just have fun together and learn what it is about Jesus in their life that has made the difference. And if you're not new and you've been here for a while, I'm going to almost guarantee that you've probably got stories of disappointment where maybe someone was going to do something for you but it didn't work out or someone was going to sort out something for you but it got forgotten. Or maybe someone was going to do something, but they were ill and just, it just got dropped. And you were going to be the next person to do that, but then someone else got that role. In, in any community, in any community of believers, there are stories of disappointment. Sometimes there's good reasons, sometimes there isn't. That's the challenge of our flawed nature, isn't it? So I'm here with my wife, Suzanne. I'm sure if she was talking about me, I'm sure she would tell stories that honoured me, that spoke well of me. But if she was talking truthfully and you asked her some questions, she would leave you in no doubt that I wasn't Jesus. Because there's a flawedness about me that isn't fully resolved yet, which I have to work through and work out through difficulties and challenges as they come. Last questions. Who's fathering you? Who are you fathering? Who's mothering you? Who are you mothering? 
Is there a strength of relationship or are you cultivating a strength of relationship with the aspiration that at some point, if necessary, he or she could make a big ask of you or you could make a big ask of them? Or is it just polite, superficial, and a little bit distant? If that isn't really viable, and I'm not trying to force something on you, so there's no competition afterwards, who can you go and find and say, I promise to remortgage my house and give you all my money. We're not looking at that sort of thing. Okay? If you think, I don't think that could happen to me, what changes? How do you put? How do you start to put building blocks of confidence and trust in, so that if we're not there yet, and we're always encouraged to have a sober assessment of where we are, we're not playing games. There's a journey. There's a there's a mission. There's a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God that we're about. So if I'm not there yet, how do I go about cultivating? How do I go about praying? Who helps me get there? How do we work that out together? Or else it just becomes something that maybe happens in other places where they're just a, just a bit more radical. They just take the gospel a bit more seriously. And I don't want to do that. I, th- I think you do. I, I, know, I know some of you guys very well. I've always felt very at home amongst you. So I'm, hopefully I'm not intruding and pushing you and provoking you in a way that you don't want to go. My sense is that's what you do want to be. You do want to be a people that demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God, don't you? Three of you do, that's good. Okay, that, That's your hobby, that's why the church was planted, that's why you're doing the things you're doing, because you want to see God actively demonstrated, not just in your midst on a Sunday morning, but in, in, in the city, don't you? I had a beautiful phrase just this last week, I was away with Graham Pyman and some other guys with the apostolic team, and the people that were teaching us, uh, he, said, uh, he said, the reality is I'm not honestly expecting to get all the city into my church. But I am expecting to get all of my church into the city. Yeah? We're not... Okay, so this morning, great. It's good, isn't it? You can answer. Thank you. (laughs) I see that hand. I hear that. It's been good to worship together. It's been good, hopefully, to to have coffee and stuff and to talk together. But actually, it's about then engaging with people that don't know Jesus in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our communities and demonstrating the reality of what the gospel means in terms of how it makes a difference. I'm not the same person I used to be. You should be very glad of that. My Suzanne certainly is. doesn't mean I am Jesus, but he's changing me. He's making me different. I get the chance to demonstrate that. I'm going to pray for you. Is that okay? And we'll do. Father, thank you. Thank you that your word is full of people that had to work out their relationships in all sorts of settings and contexts. And we get to see stories of beautiful grace lived out on the pages that actually represented real people in real settings. And we love the fact that you point us always to Jesus, that you stir us always to Jesus, but that we get the privilege of doing that, not just with each other, but also with other people that don't even know you yet. So it isn't just that it's all a mystery and we just do our own thing and somehow people get saved. No, we don't understand exactly how it all works, but we do know that you call us to be co-laborers with you. We do know you call us to be inheritors with you. We do know you call us to be doing the work of an evangelist. We do know know that you call us to be demonstrating the love of God. We do know you call us to be the light of the world. So we want to take that seriously. And we pray for your grace, O God, that what is grown here is a vibrant demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. So forgive us for any superficiality. Forgive us for any disappointment that's taken hold. And we sort of thought, yeah, no, I'm going to keep myself to myself now. Actually, just out of the way in the corner, me and my shield. 
brother. Come on, let's link arms together. Let's link shields together. Let's go together. And as we do that, there's a trust and a confidence in the person on my left, in the person on my right, the person in front of me, the person behind me. As we as community demonstrate something beautiful to a hurting world. Jesus, thank you. You said that we would do greater works than you. So as you demonstrated that in your physical body, in one location, at one point in time. So now the church right across the planet gets to demonstrate who you are. Not just in this setting, but all sorts of settings. God, by your grace, may we, may we grow in it, I pray. May there be conversations that start today, friendships that are, are, are reinforced to, to take more weight, as it were, strengthened to be able to carry more. And that there is advance that happens, maybe even through the pain as we've sung, maybe even through the frustration, maybe even through the difficulties we've worshipped. So that's where we're going, God. Even sometimes, though, some of these people around me might even cause that pain. Ooh. I choose to soldier with them. I choose to labor with them. I choose to recognize your grace for them like it is for me. And I look forward to hearing what you're doing. Not just in me, not just in us, but in others like us that choose to take that seriously. I pray there'll be big asks that happen, not just this week, but actually through this church culture that you're building and growing in this place and across the, across the region. We ask it, God, not so there would be any sense of, whoa, look at us, aren't we brilliant? We ask it so that Jesus would be made further glorified, that there'd be more lifted up, there'd be more honor given to him, there'd be more glory, there'd be more people looking at him, there'd be more people attracted to him, there'd be more people coming onto our Alpha as they hear the stories and seeing what we're doing. God, would you multiply that in our city? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk.